Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 19. How do we meet the needs of people who need mental health services? Poorly. My guest, Dr. Leslie Guys, MD, is a psychiatrist who has practiced in New York City for 30 years and then practiced in Hawaii for 24 years. She loves psychiatry but quit practicing because of the intrusions of managed care. In Hawaii, she has worked in the public sector for 20 years treating disadvantaged people with severe mental illness. Half of them had substance use disorders as well. Dr. Guys has served as the clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the John A. Burns School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu. She has been on the faculty of medical schools for 48 years. Dr. Guys is a past president of two national professional organizations. She has reviewed for many journals and has many publications. She has made presentations all over the world and has been quoted extensively in the media. Dr. Leslie Guys, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. I'd like to start by asking you to tell me about your experiences. And based on those experiences, do you think our current healthcare system is meeting the needs of people who need mental health care? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast, my very first podcast. The bottom line is that I was in solo private practice for 30 years in New York City, half time and half time. I worked in an academic medical center teaching and doing a little research. But sadly, after we moved to Hawaii, 1995, I quit private practice because of the intrusions of managed care, which were intolerable. And I wound up working for the state in the public sector for 20 years. So you want to know how our current health care system meets the needs of people who need mental health services? And the one-word answer is poorly. So the first thing is that there's a shortage of psychiatrists, and also psychiatrists get paid less than other doctors. So psychiatrists and other doctors who talk to patients instead of doing like surgery or procedures are paid less than doctors who do operations or procedures. So private insurance companies call these specialties cognitive specialties. That means family practice, internal medicine, general internal medicine, pediatrics, and psychiatry. So because psychiatrists are paid less, even medical students go into psychiatry. So there's a shortage of psychiatrists, which limits the access to mental health treatment. And furthermore, medical students in the United States typically graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt. So they really have to go into specialties which earn a lot of money, like plastic surgery, dermatology, radiology, anesthesia, cardiology, surgery, orthopedics, etc. And in other developed countries, specialists maybe earn twice as much as family practice and primary care doctors, but here, some doctors up to 10 times as much. So now we have private insurance companies which are buying up doctors' practices and hospitals. 
which we call consolidation. And one of the first things they do is they close inpatient psychiatric units because they don't make as much money as cardiology or orthopedics. Even nonprofit organizations have to make money to turn on the lights and pay the rent and all of that, as opposed to public facilities, which are funded by the government. So because of consolidation and the intrusive burdens that insurers place on psychiatrists, today, most young people who graduate from medical school and become psychiatrists, they're all taking jobs in large corporate-type organizations, and almost nobody is going into solo private practice like they used to. So in Canada, there are more psychiatrists in solo private practice, and they do more psychotherapy than psychiatrists in the United States. And by the way, they earn more money, too. So because psychiatrists are paid so poorly in our current healthcare system, many psychiatrists just don't take Medicare or Medicaid. So few rich people who can pay out of pocket can get all the mental health care they need, but the vast majority of us are pretty limited. And because there's a shortage of psychiatrists and the demand for psychiatric services is more than the supply, our emergency rooms are filled with psychiatric patients so they essentially become psychiatric wards. And emergency rooms keep patients there. We call that boarding. And sometimes they get there for days and days, not getting any psychiatric inpatient treatment, which, of course, is what they need. So the bottom line is that we're meeting the needs of people who need mental health services poorly. So do you know what percentage of psychiatrists or mental health professionals accept Medicare and Medicaid? I think it's less than half. But we know that there's poor access to psychiatric care, and there's been a number of secret shopper studies. Actually, the inadequate access to mental health care strains our whole health care system. I've talked about the emergency rooms filled with psychiatric patients. And the problem is the private insurance companies. So there was a psychiatrist in Boston, West Boyd. And he was supervising psychiatric residents in training, working in the emergency room. So the residents complained that when a suicidal patient came in and was evaluated, and they were judged to be safe enough to go home only if they had a follow-up visit with a psychiatrist within the next two weeks, they complained that they couldn't find a psychiatrist to see the patient. So there was no access to psychiatric treatment. So West did one of the first secret shopper studies where the researchers posed as patients and they called all the psychiatrists within 10 miles of Boston. Boston, big city. These were patients who had the best private insurance. So the researchers could only get an appointment 6% of the time. That means that 94% of the patients didn't have access to psychiatric care, which they needed after a life and death problem, which took them to the emergency room. So telephone numbers and the networks didn't work. Some didn't give appointments. Some were told they were not in network or they had to be referred from a primary care doctor who was in that network, and it went on and on and on. And subsequent studies have found the same thing. So psychiatric care is supposed to be covered like other medical care. We call that parity. And we have parity laws. But the access to psychiatric care continues to be a big problem. And having health insurance, even good health insurance, doesn't mean you can get a doctor. So lack of access is a symptom of our broken healthcare system, and we need to fix it. 
One of the things you said is, I don't quite remember how you phrased it, but you said managed care was a problem. I think you used stronger language. Could you expand on that? Well, managed care really developed in the 1990s, and it was connected to private insurance companies trying to avoid paying for mental health care so they could make more money. And they limited the number of mental health visits a year, and they intrude on psychiatric care. So the Affordable Care Act has increased coverage, but the premiums in the individual market, the exchanges or the marketplace, are too high and they're unaffordable. So incremental measures have been developed to try and reduce the premiums, which include these are inventions of private insurance companies, bare-bone plans, short-term plans, association plans where groups band together. Anyway, often these plans don't include the essential health benefits that are under the Affordable Care Act. And what do they not include? Uh, among other things, mental health and treatment for substance use disorders. So Another problem with how our current healthcare system fails to meet the needs of people with mental health problems is by the disproportionate burden private insurance companies put on psychiatrists, which is more than on other doctors. And it's all motivated by their attempts to make more money by delivering less care. So what they do, private insurance companies demand extensive documentation, which often duplicates existing records. And this doesn't contribute anything to patient care. It just gives them a reason not to pay. So they use that as an excuse not to pay for medical care, psychiatric care. So they require long checkoff forms to be filled out. So psychiatrists and actually other doctors, too, typically spend two hours on the computer doing notes for every hour they spend face-to-face -face with the patient. And as I said, the private insurers limit the number of mental health services that they cover every year. But anxiety, depression, and severe mental illness are all chronic conditions, just like diabetes and hypertension, and they don't limit visits for that. So private insurance companies discriminate against psychiatry by limiting visits, and they interfere and intrude on psychiatric care by telling psychiatrists what medicines to prescribe. They have the idea that some medicines will get the patient out of the hospital faster than others, even though there's no evidence for that. For example, they told me once to prescribe Depakote instead of lithium because they thought that would get the patient out of the hospital faster, which really made no medical sense. And another barrier to psychiatric care is a huge barrier is prior authorization. So there was another psychiatrist in Boston, and she published a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine it was titled, quote, One Million Hours of Psychiatrist Time Wasted on Phone Approvals for Hospitalization. So private insurance companies require prior authorization for psychiatric hospitalization. Medicare does not require such pre-approval. Private insurance companies aggressively manage mental health care. And one of the ways they do it is by requiring prior authorization for both inpatient and outpatient treatment more than for any other specialty. Well, one of the things I'm curious about now, I know that the Affordable Care Act mandated that there was coverage for mental health care. So are the problems you're talking about in the ACA policies, employee-based insurance, 
and individual markets? Right. Very few people are actually covered in the individual market. So private insurance companies, which run the employer-based insurance, which most large employers are self-insured, and those don't have to cover essential health benefits. So increasingly, they're cutting back, and some employers are not offering insurance at all, so people have to go in the exchanges or marketplaces. And so some people decide that they're going to go without because it's too expensive. So we know that not having health insurance is associated with mental illness. So 40 million people in the United States have no health insurance. So they're uninsured. And there's another 40 million more who are underinsured. That means they can't afford their medications and premiums and other out-of-pocket costs, their deductibles and co-payments and co-insurance, and they don't get care. Or they've been uninsured part of the year, or they're spending more than 10% of their income on care. So lack of insurance is associated with clinical depression. So looking at a population of disadvantaged, single, unemployed, minority, middle-aged women didn't have too much education, the ones who didn't have insurance, 6% of them were depressed. And the ones that had insurance was half as much, 3%. And the other thing is that we have job loss. A lot of people get private insurance through their employer, and they say they don't want to give it up. But do we really want job lock? Do we really want to stay in jobs that we don't like just to get health insurance? You know, being in a job that you don't like is stressful. That's not good for anybody's mental health. And it's bad for innovation. Like if you have to stay in your job just for the health insurance, you can't go out on your own and start a new business or a startup. And then there's all the patient satisfaction and pay for performance schemes as part of managed care. So one of the ways that private insurance companies try to control costs is by tying payment to outcomes. But in psychiatry, you don't have good outcomes like blood pressure or blood sugar. So is it my fault if a patient doesn't take his or her antidepressant medication? So patient satisfaction is an outcome which is really easy to measure. So patient satisfaction typically gets overvalued. But when doctors are rated and paid on the basis of patient satisfaction, they're more likely to give patients whatever they want, and that includes prescriptions for addicting drugs like Valium-type drugs and opioids, and this isn't good, obviously, for patient care, and it doesn't help us fight the enormous problem of substance use disorders, including the opioid crisis. And furthermore, doctors pretty much have intrinsic motivation to do a good job and take good care of patients. So when doctors are faced with carrots and sticks, like these pay-for-performance schemes, they become motivated to game the system to get more money. And combined with the intrusive documentation requirements, they're getting burned out, they're quitting medicine, they're retiring early, and even committing suicide. And finally, we have financial hardship. Medical bills contribute to half of all personal bankruptcies. And medical bankruptcy is unknown in any other developed country. There's also one issue about confidentiality, which is a huge issue in medical care, even more in psychiatry. So when I was in private practice, some patients didn't want to use their insurance 
because they didn't want their employees to know that they were getting psychiatric care. So by eliminating private employer-based insurance, people would be free to get psychiatric care without their employees knowing about it. Those are some of the ways that managed care by a private insurance company intrudes on the practice of psychiatry. Would trying to get a higher satisfaction rating cause the doctor to prescribe a medicine that they would not want to in some cases? Absolutely. They do it all the time. Can you give me an example of what's the effect of that? It worsens the addiction. Some of these patients get verbally abusive. They say things like, I came here to feel better. You're making me feel worse. I don't have a problem. I don't take it every day. I can stop any time. Where did you go to medical school anyway? I'm going to report you to your supervisor or up the chain to the governor or something. Doctors are intimidated by that, and they're afraid, and they don't want to get into trouble. So they just write the prescription to get rid of these obnoxious patients. So if a patient wanted an opioid, but you felt that they shouldn't need it, would that cause the doctor possibly to prescribe some type of opioid? All the time. So that would contribute, as you said, to an addiction problem. Absolutely. So misuse and overuse of prescription drugs, and then people get them and they sell them too. So that's a huge problem. And now they're trying to combat it with a cumbersome prescription drug registry. So now people who really need narcotics can't get it because you have to contact the registry and they're supposed to keep track of people are getting it from different sources. and. They have to get doctors to be tougher and not be intimidated and be subject to these rules that make them give in to patients. So how does all this affect individuals and families? You've discussed that somewhat. What are some other effects? Well, suicide rates are going up. Mental illness in a family affects the whole family. We talked about the financial liability. and. I think everybody agrees that our healthcare system is broken. They just don't agree. We don't all agree on how to fix it. But in psychiatry, we have one more problem, which is psychologist prescribing. So our current healthcare system has really ruined the profession of psychiatry in a bunch of different ways. In our money-based system today, psychiatrists pretty much only write prescriptions and don't do psychotherapy anymore like we used to. And psychologists lobby in their states to get prescribing privileges so that they can make more money. So a lot of people don't know the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, but psychiatrists are medical doctors who've gone to medical school for four years and had four more years of specialty training after medical school. So until the 1990s, psychiatrists did psychotherapy and also prescribed medication. But after managed care, private insurance companies decided that it was cheaper to have psychiatrists only write prescriptions. And they would like it if you just did it in 15-minute med checks, which, by the way, I refused to do. So private insurers wanted psychotherapy to be done by non-medical therapists, psychologists, social workers, counselors, etc., So private insurers stopped paying for psychotherapy. That meant patients often had split care, getting psychotherapy in one place and medication in another. 
So the evidence that we have indicates that this actually doesn't save any money. Care becomes fragmented. And, you know, if you expect somebody to take a medication for a long time, a person needs an ongoing trusting relationship with a psychiatrist who they're seeing regularly. And that's true for all medical patients, not just psychiatric patients. The patients only take about half of all the medications that are prescribed by doctors. That includes high blood pressure medications, too. So if you don't have a trusting, ongoing relationship, doctor-patient relationship, patients are more likely to stop the medication and relapse and even wind up in the hospital. Also, in clinics, social workers or other non-medical staff often do the initial intake interview. So the psychiatrist can't even get a chance to hear the patient's whole story by himself or herself. And lastly, if patient doesn't have access to a psychiatrist first, medical conditions that produce psychiatric symptoms are easily missed. In the 1960s, which is when I did my training, one of our watchwords was, remember George Gershwin. George Gershwin had a brain tumor that was treated for years with psychotherapy. So non-medical therapists are excellent psychotherapists, but now, because they get paid less than psychiatrists because of money, they want to prescribe medication. So this really developed shortly after Prozac came on the market in the end of 1987. Before that, we had the older antidepressants, which had annoying side effects, and, and not that many people took them unless they were very depressed. So psychologists saw Prozac as a meal ticket. Mostly no bad side effects, easy to prescribe, but actually it's not easy to prescribe. And psychologists come from a completely different culture than physician assistants and nurse clinicians who work with doctors and in hospitals. And, and we appreciate that while we have enormous power to help people, we also have tremendous power to harm them. And that's a huge part of medical culture. And psychologists may have excellent training, but they don't train in that culture. So this has been an ugly battle between psychiatrists and psychologists, which has taken over the whole national professional organizations. And it's going on for over 30 years. The state legislatures are sick of hearing two groups of mental health experts fighting. They just want experts to give them the answer. And five states now have psychologists prescribing, Iowa, Idaho, Illinois, Louisiana, and New Mexico. So psychologists said there aren't enough psychiatrists and that prescribing psychologists will increase access to psychiatric care, especially in rural settings. It's true that there aren't enough psychiatrists and there never will be. But in states where psychologists prescribe, they're mostly all prescribing in urban areas, exactly where the psychiatrists are. And even with eight years of training, it's hard to prescribe for patients and to go into all the interactions between different drugs, herbs, hormones, vitamins, over-the-counter medications, recreational and illegal substances, which folks are taking, and they often don't tell us even when we ask them, and then medications interact with physical conditions and medical drugs. And psychologists have pretty little training compared to psychiatrists. Psychologist training is mostly by non-psychiatrists, sometimes over the weekend or online, and we call that crash course prescribing. And in some places where psychologists are prescribing, they're regulated only by boards of psychology, not by medical boards. And this problem does not exist in any other developed country. 
And so that's a part of the problem of the health care system that's based on money and not on patient care. Anyway, most psychiatric medicines are prescribed by primary care doctors, and we have developed ways to work with primary care doctors to deliver good and safe care by telepsychiatry and collaborative care. Which brings up the question, how do you think that a single-payer Medicare for All system would solve these problems? Well, you took the words out of my mouth. A single-payer national health program, like an improved and expanded Medicare for All, would cover every American without premiums, deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, etc. There'd be no medical bankruptcy. There'd be first-dollar coverage. When you went to the doctor or hospital or emergency room, you would pay no money up front. There would be no surprise bills from doctors who were out of network. Care would be paid by progressive taxes, which would be less than what you pay now in premium, other out-of-pocket costs. So people hear the word taxes and they go crazy. But these taxes are really premium. What you should care about is the amount of money that leaves your pocket, and it would be less. So at the end of last year, the Perry study, Political Economic Research by Robert Pollan and his team, is the most objective, comprehensive, unbiased, and highly credible economic analysis. It's concrete, it's detailed, and it's an authoritative funding plan. And they proposed four taxes. A payroll tax, which employees pay now, but it will be 10% less. A sales tax of 3% on non-necessities and a 3% tax credit for low-income families. A net worth tax of 0.3% on people who have more than a million dollars and attacks on long-term capital gains. So this would not be a government-run system. Care would be provided privately with a fee-for-service payment system like it is now, like it is under Medicare, like it is in Canada. It wouldn't be government-run, but just government-paid for, like it is now for many programs, including Medicare, Medicaid, and the VA. And the overhead of private insurance companies is 14%. The overhead of Medicare is 2%. By eliminating private insurance companies and private insurance, we'd save enough to cover all Americans for necessary care. There'd be no financial incentive to cherry-pick healthier patients and avoid the sick and the mentally ill. So what private insurance companies do now, we call cherry-picking and spitting out the pits or lemon-dropping. So no one would be uninsured. The number of uninsured people would be zero. The age of Medicare eligibility would be zero. Everyone would be automatically covered at birth. And a single-payer national health program like Medicare for All would cover mental health care with no arbitrary coverage limits. The number of visits and days in the hospital would not be limited, like it is now. And our federal government would bargain with drug companies for reasonable prices for drugs, like they do for the VA, and like they do in other countries. And pharmaceutical prices would be controlled by bulk purchasing and price negotiation. So in clinics and hospitals and programs treating substance use disorders and people with severe mental illness, those places would be paid with global operating budgets, like the police department or the fire department. Doctors and other clinicians will be paid on salaries, like many of them are now. Doctors in private practice, which will include some more psychiatrists, will be paid on the basis of time. 
like for a 30-minute visit, a 60-minute visit, etc. And psychiatrists would have the flexibility to see patients more often or longer in a crisis. And payment would include the time for documentation and care coordination, like how psychiatrists were paid before managed care. And time-based billing would, first of all, it would save time and money. And it would also reduce the opportunities for fraud and abuse. In addition, child and adolescent psychiatrists, since they have extra training, they need extra time to talk to patients and teachers and others, so they would be paid more. And this would help reduce the severe shortage of child and adolescent psychiatrists by encouraging more psychiatrists who are in training to go into child and adolescent psychiatry. So psychiatrists and other doctors' fees would be negotiated by doctors' organizations with the state administrators. And since the system would include everybody and would be universal, it would include the rich and powerful people as well as the rest of us. And that would ensure that the fees would be fair and the fees would be higher than the current Medicare fees. I think that's a big problem in the current discourse today. People think that it's just going to be the fees that Medicare has now, and that's not true. So being universal, having the healthy young people in there with the rest of us and the rich and powerful people would ensure that Medicare for All would not become an underfunded welfare program like Medicaid. In conclusion, I'd say a single-payer national health program like improved and expanded Medicare for All would help a lot, but it's not going to solve all our problems. So fixing the financing for our broken health care system is the best first step. The biggest bang for the buck, the best strategy, something we could do right now. But we have other problems as well. For example, the stigma about mental illness exists all over the world. And that would continue, so we have other things that we have to do, even after we fix the financing. But certainly, fixing the financing would help and would make it easier to address those other problems because financing wouldn't be an issue. Plus, doctors wouldn't be wasting time trying to get approval from insurance companies, so they would have a lot more time to actually deal with patients. Absolutely. So we've covered a lot of ground. Would you have anything that you would like to add before we end? Well, there is Medicare for All bill in the House and the Senate. Everybody has representatives in the House and in the Senate. And I think you have to check up if your representatives there are co-sponsors of that bill. And if they are, you have to congratulate them for being co-sponsors. If they're not, you have to see what you can get, what you can do to get them to sign on as co-sponsors of those bills. And if they're already co-sponsors, then you have to check up and see if supporting Medicare for All is on their website and if they're campaigning for re-election on that platform. There's a lot of confusion about Medicare for All because that it's been so popular that people are calling a lot of things Medicare for All, which are not really single-payer national health program Medicare for All. So those are things that people can do also to educate yourself about the details because it is complicated and people don't think about it until they're sick. But the answer is very clear. The problem we have is political.
and people have to raise their voices and speak out and do what they can to advocate for a better system. I would certainly second that. And I would add that members of Congress love it when you call them and say, I support what you're doing. Often people only call them when they complain, but if you call them to say you support what they're doing, it reinforces that and makes that support stronger. So that's something that should definitely be done. Absolutely. If they're co-sponsors of the Medicare for All Bill of 2019, you should thank them for being co-sponsors and then encourage them to put it on their website if it's not and to campaign for re-election on that platform. Dr. Guys, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.